It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. Today, what's next for Manchester United after Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's sacking? Is he really the one to shoulder all the blame? We'll assess the new manager bounce at Norwich, Newcastle and Aston Villa. Arsenal are their own worst enemy at Liverpool. And could Roy Keane come back to management soon? This is The Game. Welcome back once again. I'm Hugh Wozencroft alongside Gregor Robertson and Tom Roddy for this edition of the Game Podcast. And the inevitable has finally happened. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has been sacked by Manchester United after their 4-1 defeat at Watford. The club have won just one of their past seven Premier League games. Seventh in the table right now, 12 points behind the leaders. At first team coach Michael Carrick has been placed in... Temporary charge, caretaker, I guess, while United seek an interim manager until the end of the season before they appoint a new permanent manager. So that's exactly how things are going at Old Trafford. But we've got to talk about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer to begin the podcast, who I think, you know, we can all say this is a sad moment for him because he clearly loves Manchester United. He put his heart and soul into it. He just, I don't think, was up to the job. Do you think, though, Tom, that he leaves with his head held high? You went to the game at Vicarage Road at the weekend. Yeah, I think he does leave with his head held high because of because of that interview, really. He did this, if you haven't seen it, it's, it's definitely worth a watch, all 11 minutes of it, because you really sort of feel the emotion. And it was really appropriate as well, I felt, because um, I was sat at Vicarage Road and I felt in- extremely uncomfortable uh, with the chanting of Ollies at the wheel from, from the Watford fans. And he'd just become a symbol of mockery and taunted and that that wasn't you know that wasn't why he was he was brought in there he was brought in, in at this at this moment to be an interim manager until the end of the season and and the reaction of the united fans at the end was understandable because it was a horrendous performance it um, really was and we'll get into that it was a horrendous performance but you sort of felt this isn't this isn't it is his fault to an extent, but he shouldn't have been there that long. He should have been gone long ago. I mean, I, I think way long ago. He should have done the interim role and that was it. And that was it. He should have been gone then because 
it, there were the limitations and we knew that and we've seen it the whole way through there have been ups and downs but we've seen the limitations the whole way through and this had been dragging on for so long that it felt like a real sort of mourning process and I don't think his his reputation at the club isn't I don't think it's damaged by this period at all for what he's done but it was torturous for him you could see it in his face absolute torture for him um, and I just, I think knowing knowing the person he is, and you saw that in the interview. I mean, he he's, I was going to say, close to tears. He's 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 in tears, isn't he? You mm-hmm. know, in this interview, you know how much this meant to him, and uh, to be to be taunted that way, to to f- to feel that you've that you've you're being told you're sort of failing, and um, you've made the club a mockery. God, I, c- I can't imagine the the emotions he was going through. I, I agree with you. I think he does leave with his head held high. I think you're right. The interview underlines what a very good person he is. Loads of us in the media that have dealt with him would have said that compared to many of the other people we deal with. He is really a, a top, top bloke, if you want to put it that way. Um, but he loves Manchester United. I think from a fan perspective, you never wanted it to come like this and you almost felt the more... Uh, he was left in charge it would eventually come to this and I don't think it was necessary I agree with you there, there were multiple occasions at which the club should have should have moved on um, I think most people that was a 5-0 defeat against Liverpool a few weeks ago do you agree Ole Gunnar Solskjaer leaves the club not just with his head held high but as he said in that interview he leaves the club in a better place than when he arrived with much of uh, his tenure I was kind of conflicted by the interview as well I you know he- Anyone with a kind of any semblance of humanity would would feel some sympathy for him. Uh, he was clearly very emotional, but I really think the the only reason he leaves with his head held high is, is, like everyone's saying, he's a good guy, and because he was wildly underqualified for the job in the first place. So you can't really criticise him for Manchester United's current plight because he should never have been Manchester United manager in the first place. So I also felt a bit like it it was quite peculiar that. He was really saying his ultimate achievement was creating a good environment. I basically, I made Man United somewhere that the players enjoy coming to work again. Like that is some major achievement for a manager of Manchester United. It, you know, it was a bit of an open goal after Josie Mourinho. He came back. He came in, lightened the mood, <laughs> and you saw the immediate immediate response when it when it kind of that faded, and you got into the nuts and bolts of what of what a manager needs to do to affect the team on a on a match day that's when that's when you started to see the the cycle that we've spoken about so much on this podcast of kind of peaks and troughs so yeah it kind of follows the the same that's <laughs> the it. same narrative as mm-hmm. it, as his whole uh, his whole time at the club it's there's a lot of conflicting feelings with with seeing him depart but ultimately it's it's the right thing for him and it's the right thing for Manchester United if Solskjaer is not totally to blame I'm going to go through some of the other areas that we think could have caused this I've got to begin with the executive vice chairman Ed Woodward Tom and his leadership of the club we know he, he should be departing very very soon and and it, he, he will have a bit of a handover period after that as well and maybe that's the reason by the way that there is going to be an interim boss it seems at Old Trafford how much is he to blame maybe not just for you know Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's time in charge but getting the club to this point partially but I think this goes back it goes even even higher than Ed Woodward doesn't it you know the Glazers bought the club to for profit that was why they bought it and with with Woodward I mean 
the interesting thing is, is what's going to happen. You said there that there might be an extended extended period, but there is a an idea or the suggestion that he might end up in a consultancy role mm-hmm. at United. I mean, maybe the writing was on the wall at Vicarage Road as well, that the only person there was um, John Ale- Alexander, who left the club in 2017, I think, club secretary, left the club in 2017. And he is in a consultancy role now at the club. And you just think, it seems to be this cycle of people who are part of the club, but but still stick around. And it's that, I understand holding on to the past and making the most of that, but but this club has to move on. It has to move on. And it hasn't, it isn't. For, For me, as a Manchester United fan, I don't mind people staying in consultancy roles or giving advice when they want to leave the role when they've been a success when <laughs> David Gill left Manchester United and said I can still help you out with transfers and if you still want me to do some of the you know networking stuff that I did when I was in charge then I'm, I'm happy to do that for a fee I don't mind he was great it's fine when you've been abject failures you know I got slated for saying I can't believe Ed Woodward's going to be in a consultancy role so many people responded to me saying this is an everyday thing it's an everyday thing when the person leading has been good and you want you want to have that element of transition where this person can guide you your your new person in charge for a few months because they've been great at the job when they've been terrible see you later here's your check goodbye I never want to see you again to be perfectly honest or we'll give you some free tickets to whenever you want to come but as far as I'm concerned there's nothing for Manchester United to learn from Ed Woodward in my opinion but apart from branding deals brilliant no 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 no, no. <laughs> this guy has been fantastic on commercial deals yeah. the football side of it has been catastrophic yeah. he hasn't got a word a decent piece of advice to give in terms of the football side I'm sorry and that is from the moment Sir Alex Ferguson left until now I don't want him to have a trans- transition with whoever will be taking over the football side of the club. Branding deals, yes, whoever, you know, whichever new pen or watch sponsor or whatever it is, but no way should this guy be giving any advice about football to Manchester United. Also, going back to your question, Hugh, and connected to the situation with Solskjaer, Woodward got caught up in the emotion of Solskjaer being a success and and this guy who's gonna he is he's connected to the history of the club and he's going to reconnect to the club and this is part of why I say I think it should have come to an end uh, at the end of that season thank you right man right time you've done the job you've sorted it out uh, after Mourinho and you see that in other clubs where they have the people in charge are have the foresight of how things are going to work out Brighton for example everyone thought getting rid of Chris Hewton was a strange idea at the time and now you see it Graham Potter and what he's doing there brilliant decision but Woodward got caught up in the excitement and the success of what Solskjaer had brought and the problem was then they almost got they almost got uh, trapped in this position where you, you can't not you can't let go of him but it's harder to let go of him and again, I mean, that's this is even forgetting the fact he got given a new contract, what, four or five months ago, Solskjaer? That, again, that's just another sign of someone who just doesn't understand football, the football side. What about the players? 
Gregor. <laughs> no, because uh, honestly, as a Manchester United fan, there was one thing that really annoyed me and it got highlighted at the weekend. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer went over, he held his hands up to the Manchester United fans who were clearly very, very angry with the 4-1 defeat. And, and almost in tears, Bruno Fernandes says, no, 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 don't boo him, boo us. It's on us. It's on the players. And you watch the actual game and Bruno Fernandes is is pointing for his teammates to run where he should be running. Bruno Fernandes is uh, histrionics, arms in the air when things don't go his way. The lack of quality, the lack of endeavour, the lack of intensity, the lack of fight. And you're sort of saying, what are you so upset about? You had your opportunity for the last 90 minutes and you did nothing with it. And now you're telling them, no, 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 boo me. And it's like, unless you want to be booed, unless you get off on that, I don't know why you would have played that way. And then, of course, the apologies come on social media as well. Oh, my God. That was what it was. And you just say, I mean, come on. Again, I don't know. You know, we're going to hear about Roy Keane a little bit later on. I don't know if there's a lack of character in the changing room at Manchester United or honestly, for me, a bunch of players who think they're a lot better than they are, actually. A lot of players who think they are the mustard and they're not. And and their levels dropped because they thought they finished last year second. They felt that they were guaranteed to be in the top four, if not push for the title. And they haven't done all the things that are actually required in terms of sacrifice. We'll hear from that from Roy Keane a little bit later on to, to make it at the top. So, so Gregor, I'll start with you on this. I'm virtually blaming the players there. I do, <laughs> I do think now they've got no place to hide. I'll say that. How much do you think they're to blame? Look, they deserve they deserve deserve criticism because, as Tom said, that performance was was woeful uh, at the weekend, and there've been several performances like that. Um, I can't understand frustration when you kind of when you, you you don't quite have faith in the manager and the sort of the way you're being sent out to play, and you know you, there's been we've highlighted before. When, Man- when Manchester United have been asked to press and they're running in ones and twos and there's not a, it's not coherent it's not they've not been coached properly to do it so I can understand there's frustration that and that kind of kind of that can rub off on on uh, on your kind of body language and the and you know just your general belief in in the way you're being sent out to play um, but they need to perform a lot better than that the, the one the one thing I would say is. You know, there's been a lot made about how good this squad is, and you, you see here pundits talking about, you know, man, this is this is a this is a really strong Manchester United team. They're the second, I think, the second most expensively assembled squad. Just because the second most expensively assembled squad does not make them of a level of Liverpool, of Chelsea, of City. The, the other thing about Ed Woodward's reign is they've overspent and misspent hundreds of millions of pounds. Um, so. This is an expensively assembled squad. They're playing well below their capabilities, but they're still nowhere near the level of the three best teams in this country or kind of, you know, going deep into the Champions League. That's a fact. We've seen evidence of it. And there are players who have been signed for huge sums of money who have woefully underperformed. Again, I'll come back to it. Part of that is to do with the team they're in, but part of it is because they're not the players that they think they are. And Manchester United thought they were. What do you think, Tom? I and they'd be sorry, quickly, they've also been signed for the wrong reasons a lot of the time too. We, we have to say that. Mm. You know, Ronaldo, Pogba, players who are kind of big presences on social media, big kind of Marketing. figures. Market, yeah, yeah. That, that's that's underpinned a lot of the a lot of the transfer activity that Manchester United have have done, and you know it, we're seeing the result of it now. Yes, yes, yeah, spot on. I agree, and the the. 
The Ronaldo one is particularly interesting because um, Paul Hurst's written a really great piece in today's times about how it unraveled um, for Solskjaer. And one of the things he uh, he reports on is the fact that Solskjaer and his coaches thought, well, when Ronaldo was announced, great, yeah, we've got this goal scorer, but we've spent the past two and a half years, three years, building a team that gradually has pressed more and pressed more and pressed more, a, li- a little bit, you know, that was what they were moving towards. And they get the striker who goes totally against that, who who removes that. But but that's only that's only a small part of um, of, of this. Um, I mean, I think I think what, what was key in what Gregor said was that these players clearly felt that Solskjaer wasn't wasn't the right man, and and that was the performance of Vicarage Road showed that entirely. It was, in fact, I even thought it started at Leicester. It was that game, and the the performance against Leicester was just night and day between the two sides and the four goals that Watford score in that game there is n- no challenge is made from a Man United player that was what that was what shocked me there is no, there's not even an attempt at a challenge in any of them no one's near it the indiscipline the the lethargy um it, it it just it's been going for a long time and the problem was the reason why I think because it also feels a little bit quite knee-jerk I think because there's no one lined up to replace Solskjaer immediately it feels quite knee-jerk well, that's the, that, that almost underlines how badly the club's yeah. been run yeah an international you, break you, yeah. where you've got the time to do it and everyone knew it as well because the issue the issue with the Watford game is that you've had Leicester you've had Liverpool and you've had City where they go into the game sort of you know strutting around uh, thinking it's the old United, but truly everyone knows it's not. Everyone knew that, especially Liverpool and City were superior. Watford, wow! I mean, they hadn't scored in their last in four of their last five games, and they absolutely batter United. And of course, they they make teams look so much better than they are. The same happened with Villa, wasn't it? Villa's last win mm. before the run of five defeats was United. I think we'll, the, the problem is we will see, I was going to say we'll see a reaction. The, pro, the problem is that, as, as Paul puts in his report, what's actually changed now? Because the, the problem for the players is that even before... Solskjaer, when Solskjaer was there, he was very much, he was the manager, but maybe fitting in with the the, the old Fergie style in, in the final years where he would step back and he'd be on the sidelines and McKenna, Carrick, uh, Phelan would do the coaching. So what's changed? What's what's actually changed? Mm. And the answer is, is, is nothing at the moment, but it will change maybe very soon or maybe in the summer, depending on, it seems, Mauricio Pochettino's want. Should Manchester United be waiting until the summer to replace Solskjaer? Because I've got to say, as a Manchester United fan, people will say, well, who's available? And you sort of say, well, there are some jobs in world football 
where people just become available, don't they? They know their their opportunity to coach a club as big as Manchester United might come once every five years or once a decade. And so, you know, you, you start seeing the stories in the papers of people who are interested and the club. From, it, listen, as far as I'm concerned, as a Manchester United fan, we, we, we've wasted enough money on players. If you need to pay to get someone out of their contract or play to get a, a group of coaches out of their contracts, Manchester United have it and should be going after their number one target aggressively but I don't run Manchester United yet. You've made um, a good pitch, though, <laughs> over the past few months. You've made a good pitch, you. So my question to you guys is, is once again, should United be waiting until the summer for a permanent replacement for Solskjaer? And who would you pick to replace him? <laughs> Tom, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, do they wait until the summer? <sighs> well, no, no, Uh Partially because of what I just said, the problem is I don't see I don't see a lot changing immediately um, because because not a lot of <laughs> nothing's the same coaches are there. Yeah, yeah. Coaches okay. are there. so they need a big change and they need it as soon as possible. And I mean, I would probably go for Pochettino, and I actually see. I see Rogers and Pochettino as potential, potentially very similar for what they've done at former clubs and and why they would be attractive to man united because they build cultures they are they develop players um and and they have been successful at doing that the question mark over both of them was was trophies uh which both of them have delivered now the the one reason that i would go for pochettino over rogers is the reaction that you would get from probably players and definitely fans because Pochettino would I think he's a he's a sexier name right now um, and I think he would inspire players and fans much more um, but I actually think they're very similar and I think both of them could work they need a change now absolutely for all the, Tom, all the reasons uh, Tom's outlined it's just remarkable that Manchester United have got a caretaker before they appoint an interim uh, and there's what 26 games left or something in the season like I, I don't know how you can kind of write that amount of a season off almost um, so if you can make a permanent appointment now and you can go all out for it then do it if you can't then you need to you need to appoint an interim manager who's going to who's going to ruffle some feathers and change things up a bit and I, I agree I personally from the from the names that have been discussed it's extraordinary about Zidane mm. you're thinking about Zidane in that the guy's won three Champions League titles La, La Liga there's still so much we kind of don't know about him you don't really know what he would he would bring necessarily mm. as as manager of Manchester United presence yes um, you could say that winning mentality but I, I don't, you don't really know beyond that what exactly Manchester United would be under Zidane so personally for that reason I think it would be a mistake I agree they need a cultural kind of reboot the idea that that Oli was the guy who was doing that was kind of false because it was really harking back to past glories mm, mm. you need to look to the future they need a, a modern <laughs> cultural reboot um, and to become a modern functional football team um, and but look, we've, we've kind of already discussed about the the bigger problems. I personally think whoever comes in is is already is, is fighting a losing battle because I think it's, the club's too dysfunctional. Um, so good luck. 
I tend to agree with you on that. You, you see the, the moves, if you like, the improvements that other teams have made. The innovation is the word that I'm looking for across the Premier League, not just the biggest clubs. Manchester United are currently a team in the past and, and whoever they bring in needs to take them into the future and demand better training facilities, better coaching, you know, better analysis, better recruitment. B- better everything, better recruitment, of course. I mean, yeah, everything, you, everything. You know, they, they come out with the, the thing about Wan-Bissaka and how many right-backs they went, went they looked over and all <laughs> the data and analysis and whatnot it's nonsense and even if it's true it didn't work Yeah. and then you know they're signing Cavani on a deadline day um, and then Ronaldo <laughs> like these are. this is not evidence of a coherent well planned recruitment strategy so for that reason as I say whoever comes in is fighting a really really look they can get more from these players we've seen the impact when someone like of the calibre of Thomas Tuchel comes in instantly impact you see his coaching the evidence of that on the pitch from the players you you will get that from a from an elite coach mm. but you need more than that nowadays you need everything you need a kind of well oiled cogs in the machine at every every aspect of the football club and Manchester United don't have that who do you go for here well, well firstly I'm just reading a bit of breaking news elsewhere by not from the times that, that Ed Woodward could stay on as United's executive vice chairman not just to appoint the new interim but also the new long term manager at Old Trafford, which um, which as a Manchester United fan, not as a professional, I will say, would be disastrous. Um, so let's hope that's you can not say true. It as a professional too. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's hope that's not true for the sake of Manchester United fans. Let's call them that instead of myself. Um, no, look, who should be the new Manchester United manager? I'm happy for there to be an interim until the end of the season. I agree with you, Tom, not from the current group of coaches that we have at Manchester United. They all need to leave. So whoever comes as an interim, I, I hope that they've got a coaching staff um, with them, whoever that might be. Uh, I don't know who would take it until the end of the year on that basis and bring seven or eight coaches with them. But again, Manchester United have the money. Um, and I think the reason that I'm happy to wait until the end of the season is if that's the only way to guarantee you get an elite coach or as close to an elite coach as possible, then wait. Don't appoint someone now who's not right and waste another three or four years. That's all I'm going to say. So if, if you think, oh, I can only get Brendan Rodgers now and he's the best coach available right now. Personally, as good a coach as he is, I would rather wait to see a higher caliber coach come in. I actually think Pochettino and Rodgers are in the same bracket as man- of manager is, as far as I'm concerned. They've both done very good jobs where they've been. They've both developed players. Slightly different characters. The only reason I go towards Pochettino is I think his his character suits Manchester United just a little bit more. I think the fans would like him and be behind him a little bit more. Of course, he's also not a former Liverpool boss, so that, that would help as well. Um, I would love it if Manchester United were able to get one of the top tier of coaches, but they've gone now. Antonio Conte was the only one available. Manchester United dragged their feet and now he's at Tottenham Hotspur. So um, like I say, if 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 they have to wait for Pochettino or, or even Rodgers, to be honest, until the summer, then so be it. Um, but I would not want to see someone appointed that comes out of left field. None of us are expecting, but it's the available manager right now that they can get who hasn't got a job and they're just not good enough. You know, that for me would be, would be wrong. But as I say, interim wise, there are some people I think that could do a decent job and they just need to be a, a wholesale change. We could talk about the players. I could sit here for the next 10 hours and give you an hour on each individual player. But the reality is, as Gregor said, too many of them are not good enough. 
And I think we got a false narrative about how good they were. I mean, you get it about a lot of players. People pick out one good part of their game and, and somehow say that they're a great player. Look, you know, Shaw's delivery. And you're like, okay, but his defence isn't great. Best left back in the league. No, he had a good bit of form. Uh, tell the truth, Gregor. Who t- What was my one of predictions at the start of the season? <laughs> exactly. Luke Shaw isn't going to have a great season. I said in no uncertain terms, Wan-Bissaka I've never backed. Lindelof isn't good enough. Harry Maguire isn't good enough. Matic is now too old. We never see Wan matter, so I hope he's doing well. <laughs> no, seriously, Fred McTominay, not up to it, let's be honest. Paul Pogba, a myth. Let's be perfectly honest. Bruno Fernandes, very good parts to his game. Some shocking parts of his game. He has a great assist or he scores a great goal. That's all we, we talk about. Not the full modern midfielder that you need. You know, he's, he's an old school number 10. If Mesut Ozil is going to get slagged off for what he was doing at Arsenal for all those years, then because he didn't work but run back, then why is Bruno Fernandes being lauded? It's very, very similar style of, I can run one direction, which is towards the opposition's goal, but not towards ours. I can't stand that. Jaden Sancho showed actually at the weekend in a couple of glimpses what he is very good at, which is that he picks out the perfect ball. He hasn't played much on the right-hand side. Mason Greenwood's been there. Give the guy a chance on the right-hand side. He's an out-and-out winger. He's a young player. Hopefully, he starts to enjoy himself. He's got a bright future. Ronaldo is Ronaldo. We know he has sensational parts of his game, but we know he doesn't press. So, as we said at the start of the season, you either change the style to fit him or you're not going to get the best out of the team defending as a whole. And they didn't. And I can go through the others. Most of them will be gone at the end of the season, so there's not there, there isn't much point. But um, the reality is that is not a squad that is going to compete or was ever going to compete with the the likes of Chelsea, Manchester City, and Liverpool. So again, no much, not much point in going through it. Finally, on this big week for Manchester United, they've got Villarreal in the Champions League. They've got Chelsea in the Premier League. This is a pretty big audition for Michael Carrick if he's going to be the interim until the end of the season do you see Manchester United winning either of these games Tom come they've just lost 4-1 to Watford I, I mean yeah you can, I, you I can mean, say no no one's gonna no but I was, th- you. I was just thinking about the um uh, about if Solskjaer had stayed in charge and played against that Chelsea team on Saturday after the way they they played against Leicester and Thomas too, and that was that was one of the things as well. I mean, you see you see coaches like Thomas Tuchel walk in after a game like that and and say there's there's space for improvement. And sometimes the, the United the standards were just it, it, it was too celebratory at the moments. And and I think I've said this before uh, that that the highs are too high and the lows are too low. Um, and that's what that's what happened in the it, that's what happened over the whole three and a half years um, this week. I think I think we see a performance against Villarreal because they have to. They absolutely have to. Uh, I think players will see their reputations on the line. Um, at Chelsea, I just think it's too. Chelsea are too good of a team right now. Yeah, I mean, who knows against Villarreal? <laughs> but at Chelsea, I would say no. That Chelsea were, were outstanding against uh, against Leicester at the weekend and. I think I think they need a change I, I, for all the reasons Tom Tom said that if you've got the same coaches in the in the dugout they can change little bits and bobs they can bring a player back they can maybe bring in Donny van der Beek they can <laughs> bring in I don't know Lingard they, yeah, yeah. But they won't have Maguire or Varane at the back um, and Man United's options behind you know beneath that are nowhere near good enough um, so yeah I think I think Chelsea will be a big a big uh, 
another kind of wake-up call for them, I think. Uh, it will be, I think, uh, an interesting week at Manchester United. They will dominate the headlines, as will their search for a new interim boss, permanent boss. I don't know what it's going to be. I'm sure they'll make their minds up by Friday. Um, and we will reflect on all of that, I'm sure, when we next meet. Um, but up next, we will get an insight into a former Manchester United captain. The Sunday Times is David Walsh has sat down with the enigmatic Roy Keane. He joins us next. Now, off the back of that remarkable news, or rather unremarkable news about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, we are kind of going to continue talking about Manchester United uh, because there was an amazing interview in the Sunday Times this weekend with the former United captain Roy Keane, of course, the former Sunderland and Ipswich Town manager as well. I've even seen him linked with the interim position at Old Trafford uh, earlier today. Not sure if you read this interview, it's going to be the job he's going to get. <laughs> Let's speak to the man who has spoken to Roy Keane. The Sunday Times' David Walsh joins us on the game. Hi, David. Good morning. I'm sure you'll get to why um, we're not going to see Roy Keane in the dugout at Old Trafford anytime soon. I wanted to start with the beginning of the interview when you highlight that Roy Keane describes himself as a drifter. And that is all about him living in the UK. Explain a little bit more about that and why you decided to show us that window to his soul immediately. Yeah, I mean, it's... Um it's a it's um it's a remarkable thing when you've been in the UK um as long as Roy Keane has been, which is like thirty two years. And he goes back home to Cork. I don't know what the numbers are, but uh, certainly once a month. I'd say there are times when he goes back twice a month. And and he goes on the ferry, which is the which is how he first came to the UK on the ferry and he he loves travelling on the ferry and he he goes to Dublin and he drives down to Cork which is a two and a half hour drive maybe from Dublin and he does that on a regular basis stays with his mum and sees his old mates from Rock Mountain he would tell you that his his closest friends are guys he met on the Rockmount under 12 team when they were all kind of 10 and 11 year olds starting out on their journey in football. And he goes back and he, and he watches the Rockmount team play and mixes with his friends. And it is a remarkable thing. And the point I was making to Roy when we spoke about it was he, he reminded me in a way of, of character in the Neil Diamond song, I Am I Said. You know, it's LA's fine, but it ain't home. New York's home, but it ain't mine anymore. I said, Roy, are you like that man caught between two places? And he said, yeah, I am. Drifter, he said. And um, I just think it's a, it's a very interesting dynamic. Roy would say that his kids and his wife regard Manchester as home. He can't because Cork is always home for him. When when he comes down the M8 from Dublin and he gets to the last roundabout before swinging right into Cork, he said the excitement he feels, the, the sense of being home. Um, it's, and and the, the, there's a remarkable thing about that journey back to Cork. Roy was born in Mayfield, number 88, Ballanderry Park. And his mum now lives a little bit out of town. And Roy, no matter what time he hits Cork at, if it's kind of six o'clock in the evening or two o'clock in the morning, because if he if he comes on the midday ferry, it'll be maybe two o'clock in the morning when he gets to Cork. He always drives up to Mayfield, back to the house where he grew up, which is no longer the family home. And he goes up and he and and he, and he looks at that house, looks at the church where he and Teresa were married, 
you know, revisits all those places the very first thing he does. And you know the way we say, you know, he hasn't forgotten um, where he came from. Well, when when Roy Keane say that, says that, it genuinely means something. And it's not only that he hasn't forgot, forgotten it, but he wants to see it on a regular basis to remind himself. His views on sacrifice in elite sport maybe mirror the, the cold exterior we've seen from him on Sky Sports at times. Is that the athlete now still in him, do you think? Oh, yeah. I mean, um, if you interview Roy Keane, he tells you that in elite sport, he was an all or nothing person. It had to be 100% for the team. And he would tell you his family took second place to that. His his friends took second place to that. He, you know, at a time when he realized it was, it was, it was, it was hurting his career, he stopped taking alcohol. Just said, that's it. And for most of his career, then he's been a non-drinker because he wanted to get the most from his career. But when he's doing the interview with you, he's telling you this stuff. And the interview goes on and you realize that everything he's got, he's giving to the interview. And and that it's not that he's an all or nothing person in football. He's an all or nothing person in life. And, and I am I am pretty damn sure that now, that now that he isn't an elite athlete, that if you were inside his home, I bet he's an all or nothing dad and an all or nothing husband. Um, he's an all or nothing interviewee. And, and you put him on Sky Sports or on ITV when England are playing and he's doing the punditry. And again, he's giving it everything he's got. I went back and looked at his punditry after the Man United City game when City dominated United to win 2-0. Mm. And Roy never raised his voice. There wasn't a scintilla of anger. There was just sadness. And he said that he felt sorry for the players. And what he, what he was saying was that they're not good enough to be Manchester United players the way they're playing now. And... I feel sorry for them, and it was a, it was a, it was remarkable to watch it, because his sympathy was more damning than his anger, because we'd seen the anger previously when United had underperformed, but now he'd been reduced to the point of feeling sorry for the players, and if I was a player, if I was a, you know, a Harry Maguire or a, or 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 any player in that United team, I would have been more kind of. I would have been more hurt by Roy's sympathy than by Roy's anger. Uh, Manchester United fans might be surprised to hear that he said he feels nothing when he drives past Old Trafford, Manchester United Stadium. Why is that? Before you say that, you you've got to give it context. And, I'm and, asking you to and, give it context, David. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. The context is that he did say that, and he said he wondered. He 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 suspected that if you were in Nottingham and he were passing the city ground he would have the same feeling of emptiness about a stadium because he said it was the people he played with or, or, or there. That's the relationship that means something to him. He loves to see his old teammates on a, on a Saturday afternoon at three o'clock. He'll drive up to, he'll, he'll, if, if, if Salford are playing at home, he'll go and watch them play. And the reason he does that is a chance to have a cup of tea with Paul Scholes and Nicky Budd and Ryan Giggs and Gary Neville. And and on and if he's not doing that on a Saturday afternoon, chances are he'll be back in Cork watching watching Rockman play. So he's got a tremendous affinity to the people he played with. But 
to the club, to the to a to a physical structure like Old Trafford. He doesn't do that kind of, you know, that you know, walking in there and feeling this huge emotional charge. Because long before he was shown the door at United in in a in a pretty cold and and cruel way, he'd realised that it was a business. And 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 there would come a time when he would when he would be dispensable and he would be dispensed with. So his affinity is with the people and the relationships that have endured. You, you speak of Salford there. It does bring something to mind. Do you, do you think Roy Keane will ever return to, to football management? I know he said recently in an interview with Gary Neville that he would like to get back in. We don't know what that would be, but, you know, Gary might give him a call one day. Well, uh, uh, my feeling is, yes, he would like to get back in. I think there's a good chance that he will. I mean, um the thing we used to say about Roy Keane, it was a kind of a journalistic cliche, he divides opinion. And, and he still divides opinion. But the division is very different now to what it was when he played for Man United. Um, back when he was Man United's supreme leader um, um, on the pitch, um, all the people who kind of liked United loved Keane. All the people who didn't like United didn't like Keane. He stood for what they didn't like. Now he's no longer a United player. We see him on the TV quite a bit. Well, the divide might have been 50-50 in the old days. And you only have to read the comments under any, uh, under any piece that appears on Keane where he's, he's been involved with the piece, like the piece in the Sunday Times yesterday. And you realise that 95% of the people here are expressing unbounded love for this guy and admiration for him. And of course, it used to be like that. And I have a feeling that there will be club owners out there who who perhaps will come round to the view that this guy deserves another opportunity. I mean, if you look at what he did at Sunderland, he actually managed well there. Sunderland did well. Ipswich was tougher and and it didn't work out so well. They got an amazing amount of draws in his first season and it really hurt him. Uh, and... Um, but I look at where those clubs have gone since since Keane was there. They certainly were better when he was there. And um, Sunderland, in particular, if you if you go through the comments in you know underneath the piece in the Sunday Times yesterday, you'll see that everybody who professes an, an allegiance to Sunderland in the in the comment section says would love to have Roy Keane back. They absolutely love the guy up there because they feel that he understood the club, he got the area, and it, it kind of aligned with his own background and his own kind of underdog spirit. And um, so I would hope that he would get back in because you kind of feel with Keane that there is a great manager in there who, who just maybe needs the right opportunity. David Walsh, real pleasure to talk and we could keep discussing Roy Keane for a full hour as well, but it's a brilliant interview. Check it out right now uh, from the Sunday Times, of course, but you can read it on the Times app at the moment. Roy Keane, I love this as well, the quote used uh, in the headline, I'm way down the pecking order in my own home. Even the dog tells me what to do. I love it. Uh, thank you very much, David Walsh. Up next on the Game Podcast, we'll discuss the new manager bounce. So there were three new managers in the dugout this week in the Premier League. And and I'll say there was a positive start for all three, although some might question that assessment. Let's begin with Aston Villa, who immediately looked a more aggressive and hardworking outfit under Steven Gerrard. Uh, Gregor, what do you think was key to their 2-0 home win over Brighton? Um, 
a moment of brilliance from from Ollie Watkins, basically. Um, it was, you know, I think Brighton dominated dominated large parts of the game until that until that goal. You're right in that Aston Villa looked they looked organised and disciplined, but it was um, you know fairly kind of workhorse stuff until that moment of brilliance, and it was a moment of brilliance. Great kind of composure to play out of. Uh, you know, from their own penalty box, and uh, Ashley Young to carry the ball forward, brilliant, br- brilliant through ball, and Watkins' kind of confidence to cut inside and shoot rather than slipping El Ghazi. Um, so yeah, that was just a kind of that was lift off, wasn't it? It was a moment that you know he saw Gerard tearing off down the touchline, and it was kind of that that was like a new manager bouncing microcosm. The <laughs> it was like um, that was a big moment, I think, right in front of the whole end. Um, so no, I mean, personally, I wouldn't read too much into into Villa's performance. I think, as you say, they were organised and disciplined, um, but I think there'll be a lot more to come in terms of Villa's playing um, with the ball because that was a that was a breakaway and a moment of brilliance that really won the game for them. Uh, go ahead, Tom. Uh, I don't want to um, carry on harking on about United at all, but one of the things with Solskjaer throughout the whole time was his lack of in-game. Uh, influence and with Gerard, we we saw it immediately. I mean, Danny Ings was a summer signing, excellent summer signing, but he wasn't influencing the game. He brought him off, and 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 that was part of the result in the in the change. Um, and you saw small subtle differences. I mean, I think uh, Ollie Watkins was playing wider out left, and they were certainly. Uh, it was it was quite modern as well. The the wing backs were heavily involved. I think one player that we're going to see, uh, I've been really impressed with him already this season, Jacob Ramsey. They've mm-hmm. got a great player there. And sometimes it's easy to fall into these sort of cliches, but, but you know, um, Gerard and, and what he did at Liverpool, having someone like him as manager for Jacob Ramsey will be, will be huge. And we could see him certainly flourish even more this year. Uh, Gerard, uh, speaking after the game, sort of remarked on his celebrations for the goals as some kind of indication that he doesn't see Aston Villa as a stepping stone. He was like, well, you know, if, if anyone doubts me, just look at the way I celebrated the goals, which I found pretty odd. I mean, you, you are the Villa manager. I'm sure you want them to win games. But there you go. Um, they, they did get the win. And as I said, I think they were... You know, they, they were more aggressive. There are, there are more of their players blowing, let's put it that way, than there were <laughs> under Dean Smith. So clearly he said something to get a little bit more effort out of them. But Brighton did dominate large parts of the game. They were a bit toothless in front of goal again. Seven games without a win in the Premier League. And that is a team that we thought, you know, was going to do pretty special things. Top 10 finish at least. Just not clicking right now, Gregor. Yeah, I mean... Look, Brighton's start was outstanding, um, and you see, you see all the kind of, you still see all the hallmarks of of Green Park's team. They dominate against almost every team they play in the in the Premier League, and they go toe to toe with the biggest clubs. They did against Liverpool, um, so there's there's still a lot to be you know very positive about if you're a Brighton fan. But as you say, that was their issue last season, getting you know applying that final touch, and if Trossard's not quite on song, if Mopai's not getting the goals, you know that. There's not much behind that. They need to kind of, they need to find that kind of killer touch, I think, in front of goal, and that's the difference between Brighton having a really successful season and having a a season of just surviving. 
Yeah, there were shades of 2020 uh, Brighton in that performance. Um, Let's talk about Norwich City. They're off the bottom of the table. They've had back-to-back wins now. Dean Smith this time leading the Canaries to a 2-1 win over Southampton. It's the first time they've come from behind to win a Premier League match since May 2016. Um, Billy Gilmore, Gregor, back reminding us uh, why he's got a pretty bright future. Yeah, I mean it was an open goal, wasn't it? Who <laughs> kind of just put Billy back in the team and uh, and he he was he was outstanding. We it's the way he drives forward with the ball as well. Everyone talks about the way he kind of you know he's, he's quick pass and move. He's a little fulcrum in the midfield, but sometimes if a space opens up, he drives forward with the ball and and makes things happen. So yeah, he was he was at the heart of a lot of a lot of what was positive about Norwich's play. But you have to also give them huge credit when you know you think the season Norwich have had and the kind of ordeal they've had in the Premier League and going behind I think in three minutes was it um, you know they, to, to kind of show the enough kind of steel and character to come to come back at at Southampton um, I, I think they deserve a lot of credit and although you have to say McCarthy for the for Hanley's goal was, was a bit of a gift the one thing I do think with with uh, Norwich is that I don't think even though you know the bottom of the Premier League, I I don't think there was there was there were foundations there. They were always whenever I saw them play, they were always v- effective in the middle third. They just could not defend, and they were never clinical in front of goals. That was the issue. So there were foundations there for for this. I don't think I think Eddie Howe has pretty that. weak ones by the sound of it. Yeah, <laughs> but I think Eddie Howe has the has probably the hardest job out of the the three the, mm. the biggest transformation needed um with norwich they 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 play attractive football it just hasn't been effective and i think they're quite i think they're quite feeble really um physically feeble you know they they go into these games and uh, why we saw Brentford have such a good start was not only the fearlessness but the the physicality they they have i think norwich have always been a pretty weak side so there are I, I know the record is extremely poor but I do think there are foundations there I put Campwell back in as well and mm. that one didn't quite work you know he's been he's not played since September he's been banished to the 23s you know I think we'll see we'll see Camp, we'll see more of Campwell but that was that was an easy way for Smith to to get to light, to change the atmosphere just to mm. say this is a clean slate we can forget everything that's gone before and we've got two, you know, two hugely talented players that we can put back in the team. One of them worked, one didn't, but I'm sure we'll see more from Campbell too. Uh, Norwich off the bottom. Southampton very wasteful, you've got to say, in that game as well. Gave them an opportunity, but they are off the bottom of the table, which means Newcastle are now rock bottom. The richest club in world football. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, Eddie Howe, their new boss, had a positive COVID test. That meant he missed their three-all draw with Brentford. But I guess we did get an answer as to whether they're going to be gung-ho like uh, Leeds United. I wonder who suggested they should do that. (laughs) 23 shots at St. James's Park. The commitment to getting bodies forward, Tom, uh, did mean there was a, a, a lack of getting bodies back. Yeah, it was. It was quite a surprise to see him stick with uh, stick with the the five at the back. I know it wasn't a, a, totally a five at the back. It was more a traditional three and and wing backs. But um, I think that was meant to sort of provide a 
bit of protection. I don't know how long we'll see that for, but yeah, I can't I can't imagine how hard it is to actually manage a game. He was meant to be in touch with Tyndall <laughs> throughout the game, but how in the hell you manage a game from a hotel room? Um, but but we saw out again out of the three, we saw the biggest change in a in a performance. They were, I mean, bringing in Jolinton was a bit of a gamble in itself but 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 paid off he was certainly from this game um probably the biggest beneficiary of of all the players and and again we saw what i was talking about before the the influence in a game he went how changed to three up top by the end and that influence that led to the equalizer um it's what he's promised. It's what he promised he and and had to deliver. I mean, anything if if we didn't have this amount of shots, if we didn't have this amount of um, attacking football and and adventure, then you'd wonder what was you know what what the point was. Um, but it's a. Uh, I think he's got the hardest, certainly the hardest job in his hands out of those three. What did you think of the game? I mean, some of the defending was calamitous. Uh, I think that's I said it before I think that a lot of that is about individuals I think he's he's got to you know, there's a th- there was a a, a, quote, a, a stat in, in uh, Martin Hardy's piece today that I think of the last 15 players that Newcastle signed I think it was like £148 million and only £30 million of it's been spent on defenders and you can see it like <laughs> mm. the 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 caliber of player he has to call upon at the back is not really good enough, I don't think. So that's undoubtedly where he's going to have to strengthen in in January because some of the goals they conceded were were awful. But you saw what you saw was a lot of attacking intent. You saw bodies in the box. You saw you know four or five Newcastle players in the box every time the ball was getting delivered. Uh, you know players pouring forward in numbers and. Another beneficiary is undoubtedly going to be John Joe Shelby. He's you know he's spoken about that openly that a player of his ability can, who can sit in front of the the back three or four and dictate play a bit like a quarterback is going to be important for them. And and Shelby's a like a top class player. He's just been ill disciplined at times and he's struggled for fitness at times. I think if you can get a song out of him, it's going to be important for Newcastle this year. Um, the way that Newcastle played is that a recipe for success for them getting out of the relegation zone or do you think if they continue to play like that they'll they'll actually get relegated I mean I don't think that, look we, we said last week that we, yeah let's let's see them be on the front foot Let's. I don't think they're going to be gung-ho all the, all the time I think this is a three-all game and you can say yeah obviously it's first game and uh, is, this, is this a blueprint for, for Eddie Howe's Newcastle he won't want it to be <laughs> it's just the the goals they conceded were so bad um, but undoubtedly he, he's going to it's a change it's a change from what's gone before in terms of both Bruce and uh, and Rafa Benitez before him it's it's going to be a more attacking outlook um, the most important thing is they need to get they need to strengthen at the back in January and if they do that and they play the kind of attacking football that that, we've, that we know that Eddie Howe's going to going to want from them then I, I still believe they can survive because they have got goals and a lot of it's going to depend on keeping Sam Maxima fit as well of course yeah, I thought he was very good once again um, finally before we go we've got to talk about Saturday evening at Anfield um there was a distinct golfing class as Arsenal was swept aside by Liverpool. The 4-0 defeat gave us a clear indication as to where Arsenal are really versus the very best teams in the Premier League as their 10-game unbeaten run in all competitions came to an end. 
Um, Tom, many felt the most annoying part of this is that Arsenal actually started okay. Um, What do you think was key in this? Was it more about Liverpool's greatness or a weakness from Arsenal? Uh, A little bit of both, really, but, but, but probably... Leaning heavy, leaning further on the side of Liverpool's greatness, really, because the Arsenal's results this season back up where they are in the in the table. They're they're they've played against, um, they've lost against City, Chelsea, and Liverpool, and of course the uh, and and Brentford, of course, on that opening day of the season, which you could call an, an anomaly in a way. Um, a sort of uh, a freak, and the 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 way the the, the wind was blowing, mm. in that and it was a totally different season. team on that day as well. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and Brentford's first game in the Premier League. Um, but this it, it, it amazed me to see there was a there was a stat about the since Klopp took over. I think they've played sixteen times Liverpool, and only four times have they lost by fewer than three goals, yeah. and that that is the the golfing class that that you're seeing there. Um, and we talk about we talk about the the work in progress that Arsenal and Arteta have and are doing. And I think the problem was possibly the results in recent weeks, the unbeaten run, the winning run, maybe made them believe that they were closer than they actually were and this reality check was 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 used a lot on Saturday night but it was it was a reality check it was a reminder of of where they are in the process but it's it's not you know it's not um it's not a moment to to panic in any way because that's just it, it, Liverpool are they could very much win the Premier League title this year. They are a far superior side at the moment. And Arsenal are one who have bought key players in the summer. Tommy Asu, uh, Ramsdale, who obviously had an excellent game. And it's it's beginning to work. But that this is yeah, this is just a reminder of where they actually are. I thought the I thought the way that they approached playing against Liverpool was 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 complete madness. I thought they tried to they tried to play out from the back against the mm. most you know fearsome pressing outfit in probably in world football and time and time again they maybe got three passes and then lost the ball and there was just constant turnovers and the pressure that you know that built up and built up it was ultimately the reason why they lost and 17 turnovers um, Liverpool won the ball more than any other game so far this season yeah so like I, I understand when a manager has a, a deeply ingrained belief in the way that his team should play and also it kind of when you veer from that sometimes your players maybe start to doubt you know how deep that belief is how true mm. that belief is mm. but I don't think Arsenal are qu- they're not at that level yet they're not quite good enough to do it you know, we see Man-, Man City are probably the only team who can we, when when Liverpool are totally on song like that can just about cope with it and play through them I, I don't really think there's any other team in the Premier League who can so you know th- there's other times when when Arsenal have played against Liverpool and some of the top teams and they're most the way they've mixed the play up since Arteta's been manager has been their strength Kieran Tierney's balls I think sometimes down the flank for a spinning you know for Aubameyang spinning in I think of the FA Cup is it the semi-final is mm. that against Chelsea I can't remember anyway, the, that kind of ball you know yeah, mixing yeah. your play up is what 
is so important but Arsenal really did not do that at all they were just constantly trying to play it from the back centre half trying to drive through <laughs> trying yeah. to drive through and just being completely swarmed I thought it was I thought it was complete madness really um, and and they, they were swarmed they were absolutely swarmed as Trent Alexander said there was kind of red blur all, all around Arsenal <laughs> and it was it was a pretty it was a wake up call really for for the gulf that still exists between Arsenal and Liverpool Finally, before we end the podcast, a very important question. Who would win in a fight, Mikel Arteta or Jurgen Klopp? <laughs> Tom? What, what is it about Anfield that gets... <laughs> was it, wasn't it at Anfield where Pep Guardiola had his moment with the two fingers in the air? Just was, Lampard 2? Yeah, Lampard 2. Yeah, yeah. Klopp, I don't know what it is about Anfield. I think Arteta would fight dirty, to be honest. I think oh, yeah. it'd be like fingers and, and eyes poke, and yeah. yeah. did look like that. <laughs> I, I, I can't see past Klopp. Wow. Can't see past clock. No. Ah, you no. see. Well, yeah, he's gone more aggressive. He's lost the glasses now, so clearly yeah. he's preparing for a scrap. Doesn't want to yeah. get anything in the way. But those veneers, I mean, come on, he's going to want to take care of his teeth more. So I, 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 I don't know. You know, I just don't know. But I'd like to see it. So if they could get a charity fight together for Christmas, that would be awesome. Uh, they had a little bit of a laugh about it afterwards, but um, I don't know. I enjoyed it from Mikel Arteta. I enjoy it when people, you know, because I think there's a there's a little bit of you know too much respect for Liverpool after what they've done over the last few years Jurgen Klopp as much as I love him at times sometimes he, he's not very respectful either so you know what when people give it to him I'm happy about it it should happen more often if you go away to Anfield you know get stuck into that it's not even just it Jurgen Klopp it backfired though let's be honest yeah, it's just a point. <laughs> I know I know it did backfire massively it basically galvanised the Absolutely, Liverpool team yeah. completely to go and destroy Arsenal but look it could have happened anyway so you know I don't know uh, listen Gregor Robertson Tom Roddy thank you for being with me for the past hour or so thanks to David Walsh uh, as well for joining us a little bit earlier on thank you too for listening we'll be back on Thursday reacting to everything that happens in the Champions League including Manchester City versus Paris Saint-Germain man. We'll also look ahead, of course, uh, to Manchester United's game against Chelsea at Stamford Bridge in the Premier League at the weekend. Um, but of course, remember, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast, The Times and The Sunday Times for more of our award-winning journalism. If you sign up today, you'll get yourself one month three. So go online, check it out. It's thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. We'll see you soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.